Good evening and welcome to How Asia Learned to Stop Worrying and Love the Pandemic, a Latrobe Asia webinar. I am Beck Strading, the Executive Director of Latrobe Asia at Latrobe University in Melbourne, Australia. I would like to begin tonight's event by acknowledging the elders of the Wurundjeri people who are the traditional custodians of the land upon which Latrobe University sits. I would also like to pay respect to their people, both past and present, and extend that respect to other Aboriginal Australians who are watching this seminar. Part of our role at La Trobe Asia is to engage the public in meaningful discussion and debate and to deepen our knowledge and understanding of the Asian region. The rapid spread of the coronavirus pandemic has been extraordinarily disruptive for Asian states and societies and has dominated our attention for most of 2020. Now, areas of Asia are looking towards recovery and planning for the future. In this webinar, we want to consider what this future might look like for the region. How will the balance of power be configured after COVID-19? Will Asia emerge stronger from the pandemic? Will it have to contend with a bolder China? Here with me to discuss this very important topic is our all-star panel, zooming in from across the world. Uh, I would first like to introduce uh, Tanvi Madan, who is coming tonight uh, from Washington, DC, where it is actually 6.30 a.m. in the morning. So I'm delighted that you are able to join us uh, at this time. Uh, Tanvi is a senior fellow in the Project on International Order and Strategy in the Foreign Policy Program and Director of the India Project at the Brookings Institution in Washington, DC. Welcome, Tanvi. Thanks for having me back. Thank you for being here, and I hope you've got a coffee uh, to start you <laughs> off for the day. Very much so. <laughs> and also joining us from London, across the Atlantic, uh, coming, uh, coming from uh, Chatham House, is Bill Hayton. Bill is an Associate Fellow uh, with the Asia-Pacific Program at Chatham House and a prolific journalist, a very well-known journalist who has done a lot of reporting across Asia with news organisations such as the BBC. Great to have you here as well, Bill. Thank you very much. It is coffee time here. <laughs> it's also in the AM for you as well, Bill. Here in Melbourne, of course, it's 8.30 at night uh, and we have Latrobe's own Professor Nick Bisley joining us from Melbourne. Uh, Nick is the Dean of the School of Humanities and Social Sciences and holds the Professorial Chair in International Relations. And I should mention, Nick is also the inaugural Executive Director of Latrobe Asia, so it is good to have you back with us for this event, Nick. Thanks, Beck. Um, Melbourne time is almost Shiraz o'clock, but not quite. <laughs> Not quite sure. Not for you anyway, Nick. Shiraz o'clock is 9.30, I believe. <laughs> now, there will be an opportunity for audience Q&A in the second half of the webinar, for which we will be using Slido. So please do go to slido.com and enter the code HASH5135. And you can see we have usefully put the code uh, behind me. You will be able to ask questions. People can see the questions uh, that you put on Slido uh, as the discussion is taking place. And we're really trying to encourage people uh, to like the questions uh, that people have asked because they're going to bump them. The, good, the popular questions will get bumped higher in the queue. 
If you are having issues with Slido but would like to ask a question, uh, please email the Latrobe Asia team at asia at latrobe.edu.au. Now I'm going to start, uh, kick off the discussion with you, Nick, uh, to get a broad sense of how you think this global pandemic might affect the security and economic order in Asia. So what are the signs that you see uh, from how the crisis has been handled by individual, individual states as well as collectively? Do you think we are headed to a more cooperative or perhaps a more contested Asia? I think the latter is, is pretty clear. Um, I think there's probably three or four things I would want to um, draw people's attention to uh, about what's coming out of this crisis that's going to, I think, be of, of very great significance for how the region is going to evolve and what the order might look like. Um, the first most obvious is, I think, uh, the ways in which uh, the crisis is sort of accelerating great power rivalry. It hasn't, and I don't think it's likely to fundamentally change the nature of um, the great power competition that's been in place for some time between the United States and, and China, but I think it is going to accelerate it quite considerably. Um, and I think we'll probably dig into this in a bit more detail, but I think what's on balance is likely is a, a, a probably a slightly stronger and more emboldened China and a slightly weaker and more disorganised uh, American presence. But I think that's probably the most obvious and one that was worth saying least about, but we can dig into it if people want to in the Q&A. The second thing I think is that uh, what we've seen in the crisis and what I think is likely to, to play itself out quite forcefully subsequently uh, is the dominance of, of domestic politics and the dominance of the focus on the domestic uh, and an extremely uh, prevalent place for nationalism and nationalistic ways of approaching international politics. And I think there's a couple of indicators already uh, pretty evident. Um, the first is, you know, just look at how we've responded to the crisis so far. International collaboration, at least between governments, essentially stopped. Uh, all, around the world, countries all thought of this as their own problem and then within it, Certainly here in Australia, uh, in the United States, you've seen it's been, it's been quite a local response and the variations uh, in um, sort of how states in the United States have responded, how even states in Australia and cities in Australia have responded has been very, very different. Uh, and the complete and utter, I think, inability of any major international institution to make a contribution to a, a global response is, is really striking. So the response shows that at the intergovernmental level, when the chips are down, states are in it for themselves and, and don't quite know how to collaborate on this one very effectively. Um, the second thing that's really, that's been, I think, remarkable and, and depressing about the crisis is the politics of the crisis playing out as the crisis is playing out. So you see the US and China pointing fingers at one another as to who's to blame, and each is doing this for a whole range of reasons, least of which is to deflect domestic criticism of themselves and their own handling of it and trying to push it out onto to other countries. So what that says, um, and you know, if you look at both the US and China, you know, the liberal optimists around might have thought that when a crisis like this, a humanitarian sort of human disaster like this, that would be the shock that got us all to kind of go, well, what are we doing fighting with one another? Now's the time to reach out and cooperate and share our common human destiny. The opposites happen. Uh, and so I think um, what, you know, so, so, and, then, and then the third element of that is 
really how the post-COVID reconstruction is going to occur. And I think, again, countries are going to be very inwardly focused. And that brings me to the third uh, dimension that's, that's going to be different. And I think it's probably the biggest change in the region's order, uh, and that is what the economic structure of the region is going to look like. And here, you know, it's, it's, it's early days, and, and, and I think this is contingent, and, and I could be wrong in many respects, I hope I'm wrong, but I think what we're likely to see is kind of some form of deglobalization and a revival or return of a, a kind of neo ramped up mercantilism. Uh, and that's both about just practical domestic economic reform and growth and reconstruction, but also it'll be overlaid with a kind of geopolitical dimension where states don't wish to be um, vulnerable in key areas. And that's not just high tech and security related issues. It's, you know, medical concerns. We don't have, you know, many countries are, really concerned that they don't have the capacity to manage pharmaceuticals, PPE, and a whole range of things, and they don't want to be vulnerable again. Um, so deglobalization is one. I think low growth is another, and this is, again, something that predates the crisis, but I think is going to come out of it. We're not going to get the V-shaped return with a sharp uptick in growth. This is going to be a long, slow recovery. Um, and then the third aspect of it related to that kind of economic uh, nationalism or deglobalization uh, is the decoupling uh, dimension. And so that's that, again, prior to the crisis, uh, sorry, prior to the pandemic, uh, we saw considerable efforts on, on both sides of the Pacific, really, to try to unpick the economic integration or interdependence, rather, of China and the United States. Uh, and that had been, in many respects, the things that, that, that interdependence had been the thing that we thought was going to be the glue that held together, or at least that stopped the worst kind of rivalry breaking out into Cold War 2.0. If, if you see that unpicking or that unzipping of the relationship continue, and I, and I think we are likely to, um, then that, ec that economic integration dimension that stabilizes or provides some kind of balance to the geopolitical rivalry is gone. And then you see a much more kind of, you know, red in tooth and claw style geopolitical rivalry. So I think they're the, the three big things I'd point to that are going to be different. So geopolitically, actually not much change, but an acceleration of a trend already there. Um, a really strong uh, focus on domestic issues and, and a revival of nationalism, uh, and then a, a real change to how the region's economy functions. So thank you, Nick. That um, We'll be digging into a lot of those themes. That sets our discussion up really nicely. But I just want to follow up uh, to think about Australia. Of course, one of your areas of expertise is Australian defence and foreign policy. Uh, so what does this kind of structural context or um, these sort of dynamics uh, in Asia, what does that mean for Australia's interests and relationships uh, in the region? Uh, it's going to make life for Australia and countries like Australia much harder than they've been before. You know, we've had a very beneficial international environment for a whole range of reasons, one of which has been inter globally integrated, broadly liberal in orientation and underpinned by a, um, a, a dominant power that was it looked like us, acted like us and acted in our interest, broadly speaking. All of those, which have been sort of eroding anyway for some time, are going to be you know, much less you know, we're going to have an environment that's much less conducive to our interests. So uh, a context with increased nationalism, decreased globalisation, I think decreased US influence. And again, it's better as a degree. It's not, you know, fundamental collapse. Uh, and, and I guess one other thing, which I didn't mention earlier, but it's, it's sort of part of the backdrop, is a regional environment in which multilateral institutions have 
an even uh, lower role to play, both in the regional and the global level. If you're a second tier power like Australia, that's an environment that's, that's really challenging. So we're gonna have to start thinking pretty creatively about how we go about charting a course in this world. I think we're gonna need to spend more and do more and do more with countries with whom we haven't been doing a great deal in the past, whether that's the nascent attempts to build up relationships with countries like India and Indonesia, but also countries like Vietnam, the Philippines, uh, and, and a whole range of others, both within the region and beyond, because I think the, the traditional way in which we've been going about things is, is not gonna yield the kind of returns that it has in the past. So Tanvi, uh, I might turn it to, to you. I really wanted to ask you about India's experience uh, with the COVID-19 uh, pandemic. So how is the Modi government handling this crisis and what are some of the ongoing challenges uh, that it faces? India is in the category of those countries that is kind of grappling with the situation of trying to think about reopening and actually um, easing its lockdown while its cases are still increasing. Um, and what we've seen so far is about 78,000 cases, 2,500 uh, just about deaths. Um, it's a mystery to people. There's still a lot of speculation about why the Indian numbers, while they're rising, um, 3,800 uh, yesterday, uh, that somehow the numbers are still quite low compared to the population size, uh, compared to the concerns that they had been uh, earlier about why, you know, the scale of potential scale of the spread. But also uh, the number of cases that have been proven fatal have been quite low compared to a number of other countries. I think for India, it's about 3.3% compared to the US, which is about 6%. So there's still... Um, grappling with, you know, what, what is responsible for the numbers and that feeds into, that's one of the challenges uh, because not knowing that uh, prevents people from understanding what the scale might be as they ease the lockdown, uh, but also what are they doing right um, that others could learn from. Uh, the way the government has handled it has been kind of along two tracks. So at home, um, given the potential scale uh, of the spread in the country, uh, of a country India's size, plus the burden it would impose on India's limited healthcare infrastructure, which you saw uh, is the Modi government uh, very early on imposed travel restrictions and then one of the most stringent lockdowns we've seen uh, around the world. People in, uh, by and large have followed the lockdown guidelines, but there has been criticism about the suddenness of kind of the announcement of the lockdown, uh, plus not in the government not anticipating um, certain consequences and you know you've probably seen the picture of internal migrants uh, you know moving in droves and that not being anticipated there have also been some issues you know to what Nick talked about in the domestic issues kind of on the federalism ground trying to coordinate with states etc um, and then that's kind of what India has done uh, at home uh, there's also been kind of a stimulus package announced a series of steps that were re-announced by the Prime Minister and we're still getting some of the details uh, of that uh, to grapple with the economic uh, impact. Uh, what we've seen is the, the other track as well, which is the Modi government's actually been quite active on the international uh, scene. Um, some of it is parochial in terms of repatriation of, of its citizens from around the world. But it's also trying to take this opportunity to set itself up as a, you know, to use its soft power, but also its ability to kind of provide uh, public goods, so to speak, uh, or uh, rather, as the case, maybe pharmaceutical goods. Um, so you've seen them kind of provide medical supplies in the neighborhood, particularly, but even broadly, technical assistance um, and a lot of diplomatic outreach uh, in the neighborhood, in the region, uh, but also with kind of some of these coalitions 
you know, some of these kind of clusters of countries and some behind the scenes work uh, in terms of the international uh, institutions. I think just very quickly, um, I think where we're going in the future is that what we're seeing is that the cost benefit analysis of the kind of health and economic impacts has changed somewhat. And so what you're seeing is now this week uh, and from last week onwards, a gradual easing of lockdown with some concern uh, that that could actually lead to a, uh, you know, a kind of a spurt in cases. Um, and so that's something to watch over, over time. Um, the other thing uh, that I'm watching very closely is what India does with kind of its, its economic, not just kind of uh, um, what it's doing in terms of the response, immediate response, but what it's going to do uh, over time, you know, across uh, the board in terms of, we heard a speech from Prime Minister Modi a couple of days ago, um, which had two very different elements. One, uh, it, it sent a message that Nick was talking about of economic nationalism, uh, mention of self-reliance, uh, be local or be vocal for local. But then at the same time, you heard a theme in his speech of we want to become part of the global value chain and be contribute to the world. Um, so it's hard to know if the liberalization of the economic nationalism uh, kind of themes will win out at the end. Um, and why this is, I think, uh, crucial is that it will have an impact on India's ability uh, to play a role in the region. Um, so I think if I was thinking about uh, the next few months, um, I think both in terms of the health impact, uh, it's going to be crucial to watch um, if uh, India's numbers increase. Um, so I would be watching how India fares in both in terms of kind of the health uh, and economic indicators and the impact. And then over time, as in that post-COVID uh, or even as it's grappling with kind of the recovery part of it and the reconstruction part of it, what decisions the Modi government takes? Is it going to be kind of that more insular, um, you know, hunker down mentality? Uh, or is it actually going to kind of say, look, this is the opportunity for India uh, to actually play that broader global role. So the decisions it takes, whether it's in terms of, you know, the US and China, whether it's in terms of health and economics, uh, whether that's in terms of the role it plays in international institution. India is going to be chair of the World Health Assembly uh, in, after, after next week. So, you know, those kind of things are what I will be watching uh, over the next uh, few months. So just on, uh, Tanvi, just on India's role in the region, you recently released a book called Fateful Triangle, How China Shaped U.S.-India Relations During the Cold War, looking at the historical relationship between uh, these three extremely strategically significant players in the region. Uh, so how do you think that uh, this global pandemic is likely to affect the, the dynamics and the relationships between U.S.-India and China? I think, you know, this is where I go kind of what Nick said at the beginning, which is here too, you're seeing uh, not necessarily new trends, but an intensification of existing uh, trends. So for India with the US, you're seeing very much the imperatives for cooperation. India's, you know, because it needs medical supplies as well as some amount of financing from China wants to keep that relationship stable. And so you've seen the Indian government be quite measured in its rhetoric but you're also seeing kind of the concerns and competition uh, in that kind of relationship, very evident. Um, the Chinese also have been quite measured. India hasn't kind of seen the wolf warrior diplomats uh, um, or kind of the public uh, gastigation that other countries have. 
um, though there have been a lot of kind of protests from the Chinese embassy about things like uh, you know, mentions of Taiwan, for example, in the Indian media. But you have seen, I think, a broader concerns uh, along the lines of what Nick uh, was talking about in India, which is concerns about over-dependence uh, on China for a number of industrial inputs, as well as medical supplies. You've seen concerns about opportunistic takeovers, as they have been in Europe. Um, you've, you're seeing India quite concerned about China using this opportunity to increase its influence in India's neighborhood, um, as well as kind of China portraying its system, both in the region and globally, uh, as superior and more effective than that of uh, countries like the US and India. So basically kind of the democracy uh, versus non-democracy debate. Um, what you have seen is kind of India, uh, while kind of the Indian government's been quite measured, it has been taking steps, uh, if you look at its actions uh, beyond its rhetoric, taking some steps to kind of um, mitigate or, or deal with some of these concerns uh, that it has. It's also simultaneously trying to use certain opportunities, trying to send the message uh, that, for example, as if companies are thinking about diversifying away from China, India should be one of the countries uh, they're thinking about. They'll have to do a lot of that uh, in terms of economic groundwork, but that's the message they're sending. We have seen in terms of China, uh, I think where you've seen a, a shift, and again, an intensification is amongst uh, the Indian public. I haven't seen this kind of anti-China sentiment uh, play out um, for a number of years, if ever, uh, on social media, uh, but also kind of even from the quasi-state, the establishment coming out publicly and, and criticizing China very, very heavily. Um, and that contrasts with what you've seen on the U.S.-India side, which is while there are kind of some subjects of kind of uh, concern, again, intensification of the trend, which has been towards cooperation, working bilaterally uh, uh, in international institutions during this period. But interestingly, kind of coming to that uh, question of middle powers and working together, in different coalitions, we've seen at least a two couple of kind of quad plus platform, platforms. Uh, one, the Indo-Pacific Cooperation Group, a co coordination group, which is um, a regular phone call that occurs between the quad and uh, the South Koreans uh, and New Zealand's involved as well in Vietnam. And then what we saw um, uh, just recently with the foreign ministers uh, level kind of dialogue uh, with the quad uh, and Brazil, Israel uh, and South Korea. So we're seeing these discussions take place with the US and India in these various contexts. They tend to be around things like medical supplies, the movement of people uh, in terms of their bilateral conversations, uh, impact on supply chains, as well as kind of how they can coordinate in multilateral settings. I think on the US-India side, you are seeing you know, how there are a couple of issues that I think could negatively impact the relationship depending on how they play out. They're both related to the point Nick made about kind of the domestic versus uh, the kind of more international or globalized, which is trade and immigration. And the decisions that two countries make on those, I think, could have an adverse impact uh, on the bilateral relationship if not handled well. So uh, Nick and, and Tanvi both mentioned this idea of accelerating uh, pre-existing trends. And so, Bill, uh, I want to turn uh, our attention to you. You've been writing a book on, on China uh, and, and the sort of development of Chinese nationalism. And I'm hoping to uh, get your views on, on China's uh, actions uh, through uh, this crisis, uh, specifically about um, the kind of opportunistic uh, ways in which uh, it might be trying to advance other goals in Asia, while some of the smaller states, say in Southeast Asia, are really trying to, to you know, their, their, their attention is focused on dealing with 
um, this crisis. So uh, you've uh, written uh, a very well-known book on the South China Sea, and I'm hoping that you might be able to give us some insight uh, about um, what China is doing in the South China Sea uh, and whether it is trying to kind of advance these goals uh, and, you know, not let a, the crisis go to waste, so to speak. Thank you. Thank you. I'll do my best. Um, I mean, I think what, I, what we're seeing in the South China Sea, particularly at the moment, is an acceleration of existing trends. So I guess this you know, continues what, what Nick was saying a few minutes ago. Um, there's you know, a confrontation been going on in the southern part of the South China Sea between Malaysia and China uh, involving uh, some oil or gas drilling into which the United States and even the Australian Navy has inserted itself. Um, but I wouldn't say that that was something that was provoked or generated by the, the coronavirus uh, outbreak. Um, it was Malaysia that basically started the ball rolling there with drilling. And it drilled at that particular time because of the time of year and the, you know, it's, it's not typhoon season in the South China Sea. That provoked a response from China, which then provoked responses from the US. I imagine even, I mean, I don't even think the Australians got involved because of the, the oil drilling. Um, it takes a long time to organize you know, military exercises. So I presume that the Australian presence with the US task force there was, you know, was long planned, unless there's something very big going on behind the scenes, which uh, hasn't been brought into the public domain yet. What of course has changed in the South China Sea is China's capability. And the fact that it has these island bases, that it has presence close to the southern part of the South China Sea means it can respond much more quickly and that it can um, you know, have ships on station replenished and so forth and, and, and maintain a presence for a much longer period. So I think what we're seeing really is um, a continuation of existing trends, which are maybe being amplified, and a distraction from other players, perhaps. And you do start to get the sense that at some kind of core level, the US is turning inward and its you know, desire to stay in the game in Southeast Asia at a kind of spiritual level, for want of a better word, is somehow draining away in kind of heartland America. And not, that's not to say that there are plenty of you know, people focused on watching Asia and the United States who are doing their best to maintain the attention and to, and to keep the interest. But some sort of, I, I, I kind of get the sense that in Asia, people are, start of Southeast Asia, people are starting to imagine the, you know, kind of a world where the US plays less and less, you know, less and a smaller and smaller role in the region. And that's obviously opening up big questions. Japan is trying to fill the void. Um, you know, is Australia going <coughs> to step up? Is, is South Korea going to step up and, and create a sort of, you know, a middle power concert of Southeast Asia type thing? So I kind of think it's, it, it's not that the Politburo has suddenly decided now is the moment. It's just that other trends have been leading in that direction. And, so, and we have, this is the crisis where we've seen uh, the relative capacities of states to act has been the deciding factor. Um, I mean, I, I think you mean specifically in terms of the response to, to, the, to the virus. Um, last year, you had a, a, sort of a, a Johns Hopkins University and, and a think tank work together to do a sort of index of pandemic preparedness. And the US and the UK came out numbers one and two, and Vietnam came out number 73. You know, turn it, you know, when it actually comes to implementation, you know, it's the states that can get, get things done that have the capacity on the ground. They're the ones that have come out best. 
Um, obviously, China stumbled massively at the beginning of this, but you know, it, you know, it was able to mobilise you know, huge resources against it. And it's those states that have you know come out best at the end or at this middle part of the pandemic. Well, I'm glad you mentioned Vietnam because uh, yesterday uh, Foreign Policy uh, published a piece that you wrote on Vietnam's uh, efforts uh, to um, to deal with the, the uh, virus called Vietnam's Coronavirus Success is Built on Repression. Uh, and I don't know about you, but it got a lot of attention in my Twitter feed. Uh, so I'm wondering, uh, Tanvi did mention uh, the democracy, non-democracy debate. And I'm hoping that we can sort of drill into that a little bit more because, um, you know, to what extent uh, is... Uh, Vietnam's success in dealing with that due to its mode of, of governance uh, or, or its tools of control, as your article puts it? Well, I, it's interesting how that, how that article generated such a defensive reaction. And I, maybe that comes back to something that Nick was saying also at the beginning, is that this sort of turn inwards, this uh, idea that we have to look for solutions locally and we don't, we're not going to tolerate outside intervention, criticism, you know, comment. We're going to try and find you know, our, uh, our, our, you know, our domestic resolve. And you can see that in the UK, which is amplifying the splittest tendencies in the UK too, with Wales, Scotland, Northern Ireland, trying to take their own, uh, their own lines on the virus. But in terms of, of Vietnam, what I was trying to say was that the same tools that have allowed Vietnam to be effective on the virus, or the reason that Vietnam's tools have worked, is because they've been honed over decades for another purpose, which has been to maintain one-party rule. And so Vietnam is extraordinarily good at quarantining neighborhoods or individual um, apartment blocks or, or whatever it might be and imposing travel restrictions. It seems to me that the single biggest factor for success in this virus fighting uh, has been travel restrictions. And Vietnam very early on imposed travel restrictions on Wuhan and then China and then the EU and other states. And that prevented virus arriving um, in, the, in the country or delayed it and then imposed quarantines and so forth. Um, but then when it did get hotspots, it was able to mobilize uh, its surveillance and enforcement networks very effectively in order to prevent people moving in and out um, of those infected areas and was prepared to quarantine 600 people because one person had tested um, positive. Um, I mean, this is, I mean, it does seem that looking at the, the figures, and the figures are reported by Johns Hopkins University, that Southeast Asia has been, has, has got off very lightly from this uh, virus. Um, and it's, there's not one thing that seems to explain that. I mean, we obviously don't know what the, you know, when you're looking at figures out of Laos and Myanmar, you know, how reliable are those figures? It's hard to tell. But, you know, you know Cambodia has, has zero reported deaths. Laos, zero reported deaths. Myanmar, just six deaths. Um, Vietnam also no deaths. I think we can, the consensus is we can probably trust Vietnamese numbers pretty well. The other ones I'm not so sure of. Um, but Thailand, 56, still on the low side. Now, why is this? Um, is it because you know, heat diminishes the, the vaccines, so the virus's effectiveness? That doesn't seem to be totally explaining it. Is it because of cultural norms about lack of contact between people and, and you know, taboos about touching and that kind of thing? Is it because Vietnam and these other countries have very young populations. I mean, the population over 60 in the UK is twice, or the proportion is twice what it is in Vietnam, for example. So there are probably many other factors at work that explain 
what's going on in Southeast Asia. I might uh, go to our other panellists uh, on their views on this kind of democracy, non-democracy debate that has emerged uh, or, you know, didn't quite emerge from uh, the pandemic, but it's certainly one that's getting a lot of discussion about, um, you know, what forms of, of governance are, are best able to handle uh, these sorts of events. So, Tanvi, I might um, ask you first and, and then I'll turn to Nick uh, for your views on this. I think, you know, we've, we've seen enough variation across uh, democracies and non-democracies that uh, I think you can find cases in both cases. And so I, for me, the more salient, the other salient points in terms of the response, uh, rather than necessarily the kind of system, the regime type. Um, so, you know, for uh, people have mentioned, of course, this kind of South Korea's, the Taiwan's uh, as, you know, being more effective, uh, some European countries, democracies, um, but as Siddharth Mohandas, who used to be in the, on the policy planning staff in the Obama administration, tweeted uh, yesterday before, uh, if, if you think about Russia's response, there's an example, you know, if you thought democ non-democracies were effective at this, well, there's your example of them not being. And so I think we've seen enough of that to say you can't generalize. And so for me, the more kind of salient points have been uh, governance, uh, including uh, what, uh, what, what, what Bill mentioned, which is state capacity. Um, quality of leadership in countries, uh, technocratic competence and leaders' willingness to listen uh, to that, uh, you know, the technical uh, experts, um, experience with epidemics. I think you've know, seen this in Asia, but also in parts of India, which have had much more experience and an ability to deal with it. Um, and then people's willingness uh, to listen uh, to and trust government. And to me, it's been interesting because it's not just variation across countries, uh, even within India, we've seen variation depending on these kind of different elements. I don't think this debate is going anywhere, partly because of this kind of U.S. versus China construct, partly because um, China has uh, has been suggesting and implying that its way of government and its way of life has something to do with its success, or it's it's at least appeared the success that we see, the perceived success. Uh, um, and, you know, we're going to see it in things like vaccine development, which Yes, on the one hand, we're seeing it in terms of we need a vaccine because otherwise we're going to be constantly in and out of lockdowns. Uh, but you're also seeing this kind of missile gap like language about this is, you know, who this vaccine, guy, who's going to get to the vaccine first to use it as a soft power tool, which says something about kind of governance and innovation and regime type. So, Nick, uh, what are your thoughts? Yeah, I, I think we're all in agreement that it's the, the regime type is not the thing to look at. It's around state capacity. So I, I totally agree with uh, both Bill and, and Tanvia. The only thing I'd add um, is speed. I mean, I think one thing where we've seen where, where states have gotten on top of this is where they've acted swiftly and decisively, no regrets, just chuck, chuck a whole lot of action at it and, you know, lockdowns, all of these things. And, and you know, I'm not a epidemiologists but if you look at look at these things it's striking that the ones that have, have dealt with it best have done it quickly and as Tanby said most of the ones that have come out of this really well have been ones that have, have, have had epidemics before and just look at Kerala in in the south of India which has had you know an acute experience of this and has just ro rolled you know knew how to play um, knew, had a playbook but it knew how to, to roll out so um but I think there was, there was an interesting point um, from one of the WHO leading pandemic authorities, I can't remember who it was off the top of my head, who I heard on a podcast that basically said, you know, viruses test social systems and if there's cracks and weaknesses and fissures, they'll find them. And I think that's what we've seen. Um, the, 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 the countries where there's 
weak state capacity, uncertainty about leadership, uncertainty about public health systems, the virus has just gone whoosh. Um, the ones that have gotten the capacity to pull it together and make it work, they've kept the virus in check. I think we will turn to audience Q&A now. So don't forget, you can write your question uh, using the www.slido.com app and the code for the event is behind me, uh, hash 5135. And please don't forget to press like on the questions uh, to get them bumped up in the queue. And I'm sure we're all wondering what the number one question is uh, on Slido. And here we have it with 12 likes. Uh, has China, relative to other countries, emerged to be more or less powerful after this pandemic? So I might ask all of you um, to consider uh, that question, but I will start with uh, you, Bill. Uh, do you see China as really emerging out of this, uh, becoming you know, really increasing its power? I guess this question does get back to some of the things that we have already discussed about <coughs> accelerating trends. It's, it's an opportunity and, and a crisis. I mean, it's, um, I mean, everybody obviously is aware of where the virus came from in the first place. Um, so in that sense, it was the source of the problem. Um, but then people, I guess, were impressed with the, with the response. Um, <clears throat> I think China did a fantastic job of managing the public relations side of its response. Probably the single most effective uh, piece of propaganda was that the aerial drone shot of all those cranes and diggers building that hospital in Wuhan, which just dominated news bulletins and set a kind of narrative for this is China, we can throw massive resources at a problem and we can overcome. And it was extraordinarily successful uh, in doing that and changing the narrative from the earlier narrative, which was about you know, food hygiene standards and all the rest of it. I mean, we've got a long way to go in this, and it may be that the narrative you know, will come back to you know, initial state failure at some point. But at the moment, you know, compared to the failures we see in the more advanced countries, theoretically, those ones with stronger health systems, you know, China has, has won the, that, that, that round of, of the narrative battle. Um, it's also, I guess, by being in a position where it can reopen the economy nationally, uh, it's in a position you know, where the state can now focus on, on other things, whereas you know, there are plenty of other countries which are still you know, national bandwidth is taken up with um, the virus response. Um, China is now able to go beyond that, and it has, you know, has a clearer space. I mean, the same thing, I mean, Vietnam, I guess, is also in the same position, and, and, and some other you know, Asian countries might think that they've now kind of got things under control, but it's clear that you know a lot of a lot of us, you know, particularly in, in Europe, are still looking inwards, um, and, there, and there's a space. And you know, a state that appears competent is going to have uh, a, a huge soft power advantage, you know, for the for the you know for the next few months at least. And Tanvi, what are your thoughts? I mean, is this really China's going to emerge out of this comparatively much more powerful than everyone else, or um, you know, might be there might there be other opportunities for other states to also increase their influence? I mean, I think there are different categories of how this is going to be received in different countries amongst different constituencies. I mean, I see one category of countries that was already inclined to have concerns about China. And this will intensify, you know, it's China's behavior because for, for yes, it's, it's response in terms of getting and, and some of its early soft power moves 
for every one of those things, you've also seen, you know, whether it's the wolf warrior diplomats, uh, whether it's, you know, trying to portray its medical commercial sales and medical equipment as donations. Um, you know, you've seen some amount of concern, in, as well as concern about while recognizing that's why everybody needs China. Um, this has thrown up that debate about, are we all too dependent on China? And do we need to diversify or reshore uh, a number of industries? So I think, I think there's a category of countries where these concerns were already coming to the fore over the last few years, and this will intensify. I think there's a category of countries that will look at China and have generally had kind of a mixed view. And um, this will kind of, Europe is one example where you've seen particularly on the concerns about uh, investment uh, screening and um, because of the opportunistic takeovers, um, as well as this debate about overdependence, I think you are seeing some a greater level of concern. And I think then there are countries um, that will actually look at China and be quite impressed. Um, the one thing is these are probably countries that were already inclined to have a cooperative relationship uh, with China. So I'm not, I'm, I'm still not convinced this will be uh, a made, you're going to see, um, I think the one set of place you might see movement in terms of perceptions of China is from that category of countries uh, in that middle, um, who had some concerns bubbling, but were largely cooperative, and they might shift uh, a little bit. But I think it's, it, there is, you're going to see uh, various uh, ways, some positive for China, some negative, but I suspect that's going to be the, uh, true for a lot of cases, uh, for a lot of countries and perceptions of them. And uh, turning it over to you, Nick, uh, what do you see in terms of the sort of relativities of power or the configuration of the balance of power in Asia? Do you think that Asia, um, sorry, that China is going to emerge from this, you know, all the more powerful? Uh, what are your thoughts? Um, a couple of things. I mean, I think part of it will really depend on um, how quickly uh, America in particular, but the other Western countries can... Uh, restart their economies and what long-term economic price they'll have to pay for the deep freeze that they've put them in, you know, they're sort of putting their economies in, in, in a kind of medically induced coma. Um, you know, it is sometimes easy to forget the scale of what's going on. You know, the depression era type unemployment figures and things like that. You know, we're borrowing my kids' income effectively or my kids generations income to pay for this already so how much that affects the us and others versus china i think is we, we'll just have to wait and see um so and i you know i just don't know um on balance but i think that you basically look and think the chinese have suffered for earlier but for shorter periods of time and their capacity to, to bounce back i think is going to be quicker but i think in terms of the relativities particularly in asia uh, China is going to come out of this, I think, significantly ahead. And I don't mean that in a kind of material, objective material sense, but what I mean was really the, the point that um, Bill made earlier, which is around American lack of focus on Southeast Asia. I think the, the American sort of lack of strategic intent, if you want to call it that, in not just Southeast Asia, I think Asia as a whole has been growing for a while. I think there's a liberal elite uh, that have still a kind of sensibility that America should be play this big global role. That's increasingly been detached from your average American and certainly your average American voter and certainly your Trump voter. Um, and this pandemic is going to 
profoundly accentuate that uh, so that the sense that you had of, you know, why, why should I, the average American taxpayer, pay for, you know, 100,000 American troops based in Asia to defend South Korea from North Korea? Why should we be doing this in the South China Sea? I think that sentiment is going to grow very considerably so that from a, from a regional balance of power point of view, the political will that needs to be at the heart of um, a, a major power underpinning a kind of primacy role or whatever you want to call it in Asia, that is going to, that has been ebbing is, and I think is going to significantly grow so that China's inherent advantages as a, you know, a um, regional, you know, a, a, um, resident power is already significant. And I think that's going to be greatly accentuated. So it's less the material capacities and, and how China has gotten more powerful, but the, 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 the shifting relativities of, of um, the sort of political intent and political capacity and will to, to play a role, I think is going to be the big change here. Well, the next two questions on our uh, Slido list, I'm very pleased to see relate to Southeast Asia. Uh, and I'm going to collapse those uh, two together. Uh, and I might ask Bill, uh, how should Southeast Asian countries approach this new rivalry? Well, not a new rivalry, but a, 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 a rivalry that's being encouraged and promoted by the pandemic. Um, uh, and how should, uh, or the other question is, uh, is there a resurgence of anti-China sentiment in Southeast Asia? I think the answer to the second question is, Probably no. I mean, I don't detect, you know, just, but I mean, I'm, I'm, not, I'm, I'm not there, but I don't detect a sort of um, uh, anti-China, anti-Chinese sentiment, you know, from the things I've been looking at. I mean, it's obviously a very strong part of the Trump narrative, um, but I don't detect it so much in, among Southeast Asian countries. I mean, I'm pretty sure people who've been dealing with China and other nuts and bolts governmental level, more will have their own suspicions about, you know, receiving consignments of dodgy face masks and, you know, failure to uh, pass on information, that kind of thing. But I, I don't detect a kind of popular groundswell. Um, I mean, in terms of how Southeast Asian states will respond to the rivalry, I mean, there's, I guess there's, you know, most of them will probably try to follow the advice of Bilahari Kausakan, the Singaporean uh, diplomat commentator, you know, the, 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 the art of being Southeast Asian is the art of not choosing. It's trying to constantly sort of triangulate a position which is co-opted by, by neither great power, um, knowing that you know, neither, neither power is reliable in the long sense, in the long-term sense. Um, and probably being more worried about China's growing power a U.S. presence which appears to be diminishing, and you know, so therefore, trying, I guess, to reach out to let's call the middle powers and see if we, you know, see if they can create some kind of network of, of, of mutual support. But ASEAN at the centre seems to be missing in action. I mean, uh, it's amplified with, with saying this sense of looking inwards for solutions, and even in Southeast Asia. I mean, we haven't seen a kind of ASEAN response to this and, and the actual coordination. And we know that ASEAN likes to work at consensus. And if you can't get all 10 states to agree on something, um, then nothing moves. Um, and obviously, in terms of their relations with China, then you have, you know, 
all of the Southeast Asian states have been going bilateral in their relations with China. They haven't been seeking collective responses. You know, Duterte in the Philippines and, and, and you know, Malaysia um, and, and even Vietnam through its you know, Communist Party to Communist Party connections have sought to manage their relations bilaterally and not as a collective group. Tanvi, I might direct the next question to you because you're sitting in the heart of Trump country right now. And this uh, relates to uh, the World Health Organization uh, and whether or not you believe that the World Health Organization uh, is deserving of the level of criticism that it has received from uh, the Trump administration. Well, I think, I don't think too many people here, particularly in the Trump administration, would call Washington, D.C. the heart of Trump country. But um, but in the broadest sense, yes, in terms of being uh, in the U.S. Um, I think, you know, I, I think that is not deserving of the level uh, of criticism necessarily that uh, has come from uh, the Trump administration and arguably uh, the kind of all-out effort uh, that they've focused, and as 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 Nick said, you know, um, um, for domestic reasons uh, um, uh, to some extent, but that shouldn't kind of overshadow the fact that it should. There should be scrutiny about its uh, behavior. I was watching this very closely since the beginning, uh, partly thanks uh, not to American news channels who were not covering it. Uh, covering kind of the kind of expanding coronavirus footprint, uh, but the BBC was. And if you were just watching TV, you could see, you saw uh, the WHO go uh, go out to head go out of China and say all the good things. And and so you, I think there has to be some level of scrutiny. But as people have also pointed out, um, this means yes, uh, we should be looking at uh, why the WHO. Uh, has been acting the way it has. But there should also be scrutiny about why other countries have not been as active in the WHO. And I hope it's a lesson to folks here, just like there is renewed attention. We've seen it over some uh, UN elections. We saw it over the intellectual property, or, uh, World Intellectual Property Organization, uh, intellect, uh, that you see in the US now say, look, we can't, there's been this tendency to ignore these global governance institution, kind of move away from multilateralism. Uh, but if you're not going to get involved, somebody is going to fill that vacuum in terms of influence, and China has. So I think there should be um, there should be uh, scrutiny. But I think the way the administration has gone about it, I actually think they've made it a political issue as opposed to a an issue that um, or kind of a, a bilateral issue or binary issue between you have to take sides between the U.S. and China. This should be a discussion about the WHO per se, and not. You know, if you are asking questions of the WHO, you're taking the U.S. aside, and if you're not, you're you're you know you're uh, hanging out with China on China's side. Uh, Nick, our next question is right in your wheelhouse. I going back to, I just I just wanted to show, sorry before before we move on. Um, I wanted to mention this phrase: the community of common destiny, or the community of shared future, which is you know, China's big buzz phrase for you know the future. Uh, management of the, the global order. And for me, I mean, it's, it sounds incredibly vague. It sounds a bit motherhood and apple pie. What could be worse than a common destiny or a shared future? Isn't it obvious? But for me, what it seems to mean is a very much a state sovereignty focused future. It's about sovereign states and minimal interference in their internal affairs, whether that be climate change, you know, there's going to be no inspections. States are going to be left to uh, look after themselves and, and decide their own targets. 
um, going to manage pandemics and blah, 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 blah. So actually, I, I think an inward turn, a virus turn where, you know, movement restrictions and, and the state is, is re-empowered and multilateralism kind of diminishes is actually something which is very beneficial for this Chinese vision of the future. And I think that, you know, it's ultimately, I think, you know, the next you know, few years is going to be a struggle between a vision of the world in which states share sovereignty and cooperate and one which is very much more sovereignty focused. And, but of course, you know, who stands up for that multilateral order? But it's not really the US at the moment, you know, and the EU is kind of, you know, dithering. Um, is it going to be Australia? <laughs> who else is going to do it? So it kind of looks like, you know, the, that shared destiny, common destiny agenda doesn't have any opponents at the moment. Well, it's actually government. Uh, sorry, Nick. As in, the Australian, the current Australian government is not going to be defending. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yes. No, not when it talks about negative globalism in foreign policy speeches. I, I wouldn't think that it's heading in that direction. But Bill, um, what you had to say actually leads in perfectly to the question um, that I'm directing to Nick, uh, which goes back to globalisation. A little while ago, you wrote a book on globalisation. Uh, and I think uh, we, have, we had a conversation uh, a few weeks ago where we said that some of the debates that were happening around 20 years ago are re-emerging uh, because of this uh, pandemic. So uh, the question uh, is asking about uh, whether we'll, we will see a decrease of globalisation, which I think you've, you've, you've sort of said that we probably will see a decrease of globalisation. But what does this mean in terms of an increase in self-reliance or independence or a return to this kind of traditional Westphalian state sovereignty that, that Bill was just talking about? Um, look, I'll take the economic bit first because that's a bit easier to talk about um, in some respects. So that's so the real question is whether the, the virus has interrupted global um, global commerce to a large degree, not totally, uh, it, and has sort of put this pause on things. And then we've now there's a political moment that says, "Hey, when we come back, do we just rush back and do exactly what we were doing before and try to get back?" to um, integrated complex supply chains, basically in a, a very China-centric production system and an American-centric financial system? Or do we want to actually pair that back because it comes with these vulnerabilities? It brings with it enormous efficiencies and, and has generated an enormous amount of wealth across the world, um, but it brings with it all sorts of risks. And this, finally, the really, really acute risk um, has played itself out, which is a proper global pandemic that has had, you know, truly just astonishing uh, sets of outcomes. Um, and I think there is, this, uh, I, I, I said at the start that I think deglobalization is likely, but you, you wouldn't put the house on it in the sense that I think if you want to unpick complex supply chains, if you want to create national industries, if you want to create a national pharmaceutical capacity or capacity to manufactured PPE or whatever else is going to be needed. Um, that will take time. It will also be expensive and it'll be slow. Uh, whereas all these supply chains are just there, ready to go. Um, and if we can just get the liquidity in and we can get our energy up and if we can get consumers going, then the temptation I think will be to try to get back to where we were because it'll provide a more rapid um, pace of growth or, or a speedier 
recovery. So don't don't just assume because we hear a lot of noise around um, national champions and this sort of stuff that it'll happen. So that's why I'm saying at the stop, it's a bit contingent. We don't know exactly how this is going to play. And I think, you know, you, you wouldn't, it, it, it's, it's difficult to tell. And I think short-term return is likely to be pretty tempting to a lot of countries. Um, but having said that, I do think a lot of countries will be saying in certain areas, we do want to have national capacity. In certain areas, we want to have, whether it's, and, and it'll kind of get to that stuff around high tech and 5G that was sort of, was on the tip of everyone's tongues and we've now forgotten about it again, except in relation to the 5G coronavirus cranks. Um, but that's going to that's gonna come back. And perhaps these two things together will push in certain sectors um, a kind of 21st century uh, industrial policy and 21st century sort of national champions. Um, there's also a good chance that a lot of countries will end up uh, national treasuries will end up with balance sheets where they own a lot of stuff. <laughs> they have a lot of, I mean, we could have airlines, we could have uh, car, uh, not necessarily car companies, but a whole range of other things. So that could by default sort of bring us into a late sixties, early seventies version of, of, of economic growth. So um, economic, economic deglobalization is, I think has a strong prob probability or sorry, a strong possibility around it, but, I think there's still elements where we'll see aspects of economic integration. Um, so that then leads to the question of what, what that might all mean um, politically uh, and whether it is going to feed into the sorts of things that Bill was saying, uh, because I think he's exactly right that what does China want? China wants the UN Charter run international order as in the original one not the one that's all been added and abetted with nice liberal sentiments around rights and peoples and duties and individual subjects and all that sort of stuff. It's about states and sovereignty and non-interference. Um, and I think if we get an increasingly deglobalized and a more nationalist and in, uh, independently minded from an economic point of view, then I think that strengthens that prospect. Uh, and that's why, you know, and, and that's why often people forget with the decoupling debate, around China and the US that there's a strong an argument on the Chinese side for decoupling as there is on the American side, because the, the Chinese feel like they're too vulnerable and too dependent on American money and American consumers. And, you know, the, the fact that the, the China has too many treasury bills is something that's bothering them. It's been bothering them for 10 or 15 years. Um, so I think there's an incentive to some degree uh, to, 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 as we come out of this for key players to sort of push a more nationalist vision of how the global economy will work because it's, it's got both sort of economic and political and strategic interests to it. What, what we might get, in fact, is, is and again, was something we were talking about earlier around uh, prior to the crisis. Um, we were talking about the, um, the internet and the sort of two internets and two technology spheres is we might get sort of two or three different economies. And, this, and then the Cold War analogy might actually be more meaningful where we have a China-centric global economy that doesn't do a great deal with an American-centric global economy. Um, but, you know, that's, that's sort of pretty, we're getting in the air, air of very high speculation. But, you know, what's, once you've had the past two months, you get to start thinking about pretty weird things because whole lots of things that you never thought we could ever see are happening every day. That's right. Uh, well... I'm afraid that we won't be able to uh, answer any more questions. We have a long list of questions. So thank you um, for everybody who uh, wrote uh, in on Slido. Uh, I would like to um, thank our panellists for joining us tonight. 
uh, Tanvir Madan, uh, it's breakfast time for you. Bill Hayden, it's lunch time for you. And Nick Beasley, it's Shiraz time for you. Uh, so thank you to the audience uh, for watching this Latrobe Asia event. Uh, this webinar has been recorded. Uh, if you've registered for the event, you will be emailed the appropriate links when they are ready to go. Uh, but please do follow us on Twitter at Latrobe Asia or join our mailing list to find more details for online events and Latrobe Asia publications. Uh, thanks again to our panellists. It's been a terrific, uh, incredibly rich discussion on these issues. Uh, I've really enjoyed it and I'm sure that our, our viewers have too.